Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. I'm also a better comedian than I am a comedic writer, <laughs> if that makes sense. I'm, my process is to regurgitate, so I'll write nine pages, ending, and then I'll just kind of get in the shower and take a can of deodorant and hold it like a mic and just pace up and down in a room, and then I'll end up using one of those nine pages. But I don't rewrite with a pencil, I rewrite on my feet um, in a room. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Very excited today. My guest here in Montreal, Avir Das. Can't wait to get to it. Can't wait to introduce him, which I shall do now without further ado. I'll make it quick because this guy has a lot to say, and I'm really, really happy he's here. All right, Veer Das is the biggest English-speaking comedian in India and one of the country's top stand-up performers, actors, writers, musicians, and festival producers. He recently made a huge impact globally with his Netflix original special, A Broad Understanding, and just recently was honored by Variety Magazine as one of their annual top 10 comics to watch. Virdas climbed the ranks of the Bollywood elite in various films such as Bad Mosh Company, Delhi Belly, and Revolver Ronnie to become the Indian Adam Sandler. Through his various tours, including The History of Comedy and Battle of the Sexes, he has sold over half a million tickets as a stand-up comedian. Das recently concluded sold-out runs in Australia and at London's prestigious Soho Theatre. This past summer, he was featured at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, as well as the Montreal Just for Laughs Comedy Festival, here right now. Please welcome my guest today, what a great honor, Veer Das. What's up? Hello. <laughs> How you doing, man? I'm good. I'm, I'm exhausted, but I'm done with my festival. So I'm, uh, my last show was last night, and then today I'm just watching stuff and chatting with people. So yeah. Well, after you hear my voice, it'll definitely put you to sleep. <laughs> I don't really watch movies as much as I can. Yeah. 
And after I saw a movie recently, I thought to myself, there must be some kind of tie-in here because I know I'm going to sit down with Veer Das if it kills me. Okay. And the movie was Lion. Oh, yeah. Lion was, um, I think, one of the most accurate representations of India I've seen in a while. You know what I mean? A lot of times we tend to, or at least Hollywood specifically tends to fetishize India or to, you know, kind of make it um, a more sullen or distressed India than it is or a more glamorous India than it actually is. And that one kind of got a bang on. It's a great film. In thinking about the possibility of getting the opportunity to sit down with you, I wanted to ask you, you were born in India. I was born in India, but I went to Africa when I was like a year old. When you went back to India, you were how old? I went to Africa when I was a year old, but I used to go back and forth because I was in boarding school in India. So when I was, um, I think I went to boarding school when I was eight. So, you know, I, I would do seven months in India and five months in Africa. You didn't live the kind of life of the family in Lyon. You didn't live that existence. You lived a different existence. Yeah, I mean, we were just a regular middle-class Indian family. You know what I mean? Even within the African con constraints, we were a middle-class family. In India, how is it broken up from 100% pie of the population? And what percentage would be considered upper class? What percentage would be considered, let's say, upper middle class, middle class, lower middle class, and then poverty um i'd venture to say and, and i'm guessing it best but i'd venture to say maybe 20 percent of india 30 percent of india is middle class and what percentage are in the representation of lion where they're living in areas where they barely can survive i'd say 40 to 50 percent so when you were growing up there mm -hmm. and out your window or out the window of the car you saw what you saw how does that blow a hole in a person and how do they feel like they can make a difference in I, their country? I mean, I'll answer that in two parts. I, I don't think you think about it as actively as, as the outsider does when you're inside that bubble. You know what I mean? Uh, when it comes to poverty or a large population, and I lived in Nigeria and India, both of which are, you know have a fair amount of poverty attached to them. I think when you're in it, you're in it. You know, um, it's a very Western thing or specifically American, British, Canadian, European thing to, there's a novelty to poverty, almost, you know what I mean? But when you're in it, you, you kind of tend to be desensitized to it because that's just your surroundings and you accept that. So you almost don't think of that as something as being unusual. There's movies about the rich girl who's going out with the guy who's on the other side of the tracks, who mm -hmm. lives in the trailer park, and they're going out. One person is homeless practically, and the other person is wealthy, and the parents are like, I don't want you going out with that yeah. person or whatever. Mm -hmm. In India, is it just as common for wealthy people to go out with people who are suffering from poverty? No, I think the, the class lines are pretty finely drawn in India. You know what I mean? And they're, they're kind of drawn in the sand. We also have Bollywood movies which are exactly about that, which is about, you know, girl and guy trying to get together despite all odds. But I think it's when when a fair amount of a country is poor, even the the rich or the middle class or the low middle class are not oblivious to that poverty and are also struggling at some level. You know what I mean? So it's it's something that we're all aware of and we're a large population and we're in the same place and we have to learn to get along. 
um, and there's that common sort of acknowledgement that this is the way things are. And again, the naivete <laughs> of a lot of people in the United States is that we kind of think to ourselves, well, there's been this amount of poverty for so long, year after year, mm -hmm. decade after decade. Why is it so impossible for somebody to come into the government and change the way things are? Well, because we have 1.3 billion people. You know, the United States is a country that is bigger than ours geographically. You have 300 million people. So just imagine where you and I stand right now. We're sitting on this sofa. Imagine there were eight more people on this sofa. Literally this sofa. So three more for, four more for you, four more for me. What would this sofa feel like then? And what would a government do about it if all we had was this sofa? My thought process would be that the government, unless it was against the religious constraints of what people believed and their culture would be, hey, it looks like the population is growing at a ridiculous rate. Mm -hmm. It might be better for each family to have X amount of kids as opposed to X amount of kids like certain countries have done. It's a very idealistic, almost utopian approach that applies to a first world society. It's a slippery slope. You know what I mean? When a third world country or a developing country says we're going to monitor population or have population control because, you know, the amount of children you want to have or the right to procreate is the most basic human right. So I feel like when you hand that right over to the government consciously and, and have them police that, what else are you handing over? Are you handing over freedom of speech? Are you handing over journalism? Can they control your food? Can they control who you marry, who you have sex with? Because once you've given that, what else is there? I personally think a solution to that is education. You know what I mean? That's the root of it all, is we, we need more literacy in India. People need to understand sanitation, safe sex, population control, measures, birth control, family control, all of that stuff. And that will be, you know, um, the way forward, I, I think. A lot of people end up having eight, nine kids in rural communities in India because they just don't know any better. They don't know about birth control. Or they feel like they have to have nine kids to sustain their family, to work in the field, to kind of keep everybody you know, alive, so to speak. So it's just, I believe in education problem. You know, people in cities, people who are educated in India are not having five kids. They're having two. So it's just a matter of education, I think, and specifically women's education, girl-child edu education. That's a big problem in India. We don't educate women, so they don't know they have rights. They have the right to say no. They have the right to choose. They have, you know, they have various rights. So that's the root of the problem to me. Now, again, mm -hmm. I'm sorry that I don't know this. I didn't know that all women in India are not allowed to have an education. Well, I wouldn't say they're not allowed. I'd say they're not encouraged to. At a, at a rural level. Um, so, I mean, that's something that this government has reasonably stepped up on. There's a campaign called the Beti Bachao campaign, which means save our daughters um, by educating them, by, you know, making sure that they have proper sanitation, making sure that there's a toilet in each house that is specifically a female toilet, that they are not allowed to be married before the age of 18. Just little things that happen in a very large country such as ours. 
one of the things I think about when you're talking about this is <laughs> I'm Jewish. My rabbi, who has a congregation in Malibu, believe it or not, he bought a house on the Pacific Coast Highway overlooking the ocean. And the living room of his house is the actual, I guess, congregation okay. space with the Torah. And it's like every time you go there, there's another newborn, eight or nine kids. Yeah. And he always encourages me to ask him or say anything to him. He says, there's no question that's wrong. Yeah. And I asked him one time, I said, it appears that, let's say you have 10 kids or whatever, and you have 10 hours, you can only give each kid one hour. You have two kids, you can give them five hours each you choose to keep having children and you're living upstairs it seems very uncomfortable you're in malibu but you guys are living on top of each other and yet you're so positive and you stay positive and your congregation is growing everything's amazing but it seems like you and your wife keep putting pressure on yourself having children why is that and he said listen the way I believe in the Jewish religion, the way we believe it is, it's God's will. And if God wants me to have children, I'm going to have children for as long as they want us to have them. Mm -hmm. And that's the way it works. And women are educated, but that's his culture. And he's decided to go that way. Is some of the culture in India geared in that kind of realm? No, I, I don't think there's... Anything that is specifically Hindu about birth control or the amount of children that you're meant to have, it's the amount of children that you're meant to have. Uh, Hindus aren't really, I don't know if we've explicitly said anything even about premarital sex in Hinduism, you know what I mean, in its original form, where it's good or bad or, you know, those are, I mean, Hinduism is much deeper and much broader than that, so to speak. So I, I don't feel like it has religious roots or belief roots. I just think it's, we have way too many people in too small a place. And at some point, it got away from us. And now we're trying to reel it back in. And we have to take this crop of people and educate all of them so that the next crop of people is okay. You have such a powerful presence about you. I don't think this is an insult even to see you on stage. And I've watched your specials mm -hmm. and your trailers and your Conan appearance. There's nothing zero in those performances, which are extraordinarily funny that even remotely expresses the power and the intellect and the seriousness and the calm and the laser like focus that you have when I'm speaking to you. It's incredible. I, um, I don't know how to respond to that. <laughs> I, I think I'm, I'm most comfortable in a one-on-one -on -one situation and in a conversation, I, I find. You know, I'm, I'm not really a, a very social person, so to speak. I'm, I find, like, that my stage is my... It's like my going to the gym, you know what I mean? And then when I'm done, I'm done. And I'm a different person when I step off that stage. So I very much value sort of quality conversation or being engaged with a person. And that's what I love about this because what you just said is the most valuable thing in my life mm -hmm. and I would go to the mat I would choose this over anything if yeah. there was a girl that was naked right there and said come over here do whatever you want to me and tell Veer that you'll do the podcast later I would say please put your clothes on and I'll hopefully see you later <laughs> all right 
Okay. Because there's something really, really special. Well, I'm, I'm happy to have replaced your naked girl. Your <laughs> American, uh, it was a visual. <laughs> you know, sometimes when certain people become more and more successful, mm -hmm. you hear of them going back to the community and trying to yeah. figure out how to make things better. And they put the weight of the world on their shoulders. Yeah. And when obviously one person can't save the world. Yeah. How do you feel your increased fame is supposed to be an instrument to help make change in the countries that you want to make change in? Uh, I, I mean, there's two parts to that. And one of them is a part that I don't think about, which is fame. I consciously reject um, the trappings of, of fame, so to speak. I don't feel like it's real. And I feel like it's dangerous to get used to it or to acknowledge it. <clears throat> it's sort of like a, a green-eyed monster or a red-eyed monster that lives somewhere within the room that you inhabit. But you would do well to keep him 20 feet away from you at all times. Uh, I've, I've seen, you know, Bollywood's very much like Hollywood in that it's glamorous and you're up one day and you're down one day. And, you know, uh, there's a lot of people telling you what you want to hear instead of what you need to hear. It's a lot of yes men. And I've seen many people get used to that and the trappings of that fame. And then when it goes away as it inevitably does and goes in ebbs and flows, they lose their mind. So I don't think about fame at all. Um, what is this room is a question that I ask myself a lot. What is the energy of this room? Is this a stadium? It's 6,000 people. It's a club. It's catacombs. It's 50 people. How are these people feeling? Because they're in my hand for the next 60 minutes of their lives. And I have the ability to start a conversation. And my ability to start this conversation is not by virtue of my fame, but just by the virtue of the energy in this room. But your fame got them in the room. Maybe so, but I don't have to deal with that anymore. Something that I firmly believe is that your reputation belongs to other people. Your talent belongs to you. So whether they showed up because they liked the work or they didn't like the work or they saw a movie that made them come to a stand-up comedy show... Or they saw a stand-up comedy show that makes them watch the movie. Or they want a selfie with you. Or they think you're cute. Or they... Whatever. It's none of my business. My reputation is none of my business. My talent is my business. What is the joke that I'm writing? What's the line that I'm saying? How well am I saying it? What am I starting a conversation about? It's fucking useless to think about those other things. Because tomorrow they won't want a selfie with you and you'll be done. And then you'll have a hit movie again. And they'll want a selfie with you again. And then you'll have a flop show and they'll, they, they won't want a selfie with you again. And that's just going to happen. It's happened to me five times in my career already. And I've only been doing this for nine years. So that shit isn't real from my perspective. It'll go away. It'll come back. And when it comes, you graciously bow. And when it goes away, you graciously wave at it as it sails away on an ocean. But I have the ability to start a conversation in this room. And that conversation can be two degrees of separation away from real change because the genesis of change is conversation. So do I do a joke about my government in an atmosphere where you're not supposed to? Yes, I do. In the Netflix special, for instance, we talk about homophobia, we talk about race, so we talk about Islamophobia, we talk about Indians being as racist as the rest of the world. Those aren't things that are easy to talk about in the current Indian scenario. But to me, what is that room? And how can I get that room to a place through charm, through disarming them, through making fun of myself, through whatever tools I have, where we can have a real conversation? 
one of my best friends who is no longer with us, she used to have the saying, I'll never forget, it was her greatest advice ever. She used to say, Hey everybody, I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. What you think of me is none of my business. Yeah, absolutely. It isn't. Because who knows why another person forms an opinion of you. When I think of Halle Berry, there's a chemical reaction that's happening in my body when I'm thinking of Halle Berry. You know what I mean? That, that has formed my opinion of her and her work and, and all of that stuff. And, but why should she be even remotely invested in my chemical reaction to her? She's just got to focus on what her next script is and going to the gym and looking like Halle Berry. You know what I mean? So I, I don't think that's you know, any of her business, so to speak. Fantastic. When you're with other comedians, like yeah. at a festival like yeah. this, you get to sit down with all different types yeah. of artists. Some artists are people that you would never talk to in any scheme or sphere in the universe. Yeah. Others live their lives fast and hard, mm -hmm. and you would never be a part of that world. Yeah. Others have a more basic, straight down the middle approach to comedy with no edge, yeah. no conversation. Others are jaded people who've been around a long time and are wondering what happened and why this world passed me by. And others are angry, angry, angry people who use their anger and channel it through their comedy. How are you at mixing together? Oh, by the way, I think we should divide them into those groups at check-in. You know, like once they get to the hotel, to be like, you stand in that line. You're in the angry line. You're in the jaded line. And just give them floors. <laughs> one of my favorite Jeffrey Ross bits. It was so quick. It's so funny. I'll never forget the one of the first times he was in Montreal. He said, I'm here for the comedy festival. You should have seen the airport. It was incredible. I went through an insecurity check. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. <laughs> but how do you mix with all these people? Are you good with mixing with comedians? Or are no, I'm, I'm not. I'm, uh, I'm very recently inducted, I feel, into the American comedy scene. You know, uh, for a while, you know, like I was here last year. I did five minutes last year. Literally, I, I came here for five minutes. I did a taping, which got a fair amount of attention from the industry. And they were like, hey, there's this guy and he's interesting. And then in the year after that, the Netflix special happened and then the Variety Tend to Watch happened. And um, 
Then this year I had like six solos and four galas and, and all of that stuff. But I've kind of gone from being, who's that guy? Uh, to, oh, that guy. You know what I mean? So it's still not, hey, have a seat. Let's have a conversation. It's, it's the guy from India who's now, or the guy who's doing stuff here but who's Indian, to now we'll see where that goes next. Like I, I was in, um, I think I was in the lift with like Chris D'Elia yesterday and there's no reason we should know each other. We live on, across oceans from two different countries and he was like, hey man, you're doing good things and that was just very nice and gracious of him to say. Um, and it, it made me feel for the first time like, okay, um, I'm in this scene as well because I of course know him because I'm a fan but to have that guy know me and and acknowledge that we're both doing the same job is a privilege at a certain level. And it's nice to be a part of this scene. You know, I was on the, the Tend to Watch panel yesterday with people who are doing very exciting things within entertainment over here. And I, I was the one non-American accent in that group, which was cool. You know, the world's becoming a smaller place. So... I don't know where I fit into a comedy festival, honestly, just yet. I'm I'm just, uh, this is the first time I fit into a comedy festival, so to speak. Does it bother you that after you did the five minutes up here mm -hmm. and you did the variety 10 to watch, which is again another five minute thing, yeah. whatever it is, does it bother you that you, technically speaking, are no more talented than you were then than you are now it's just that the world knows about it i don't know you know I, I, it's like i said it's i live a very varied life more so i feel and, and i say this with no sense of arrogance whatsoever <clears throat> than the average american comic you know because I, I get to oscillate between anonymity and popularity in different countries which is kind of nice you know, it's 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 lovely to come, to go back to India and feel like a star, you know, and to have clout or to have, you know, and to me, I'll define clout. Like to me, success is the amount of time that passes between me having an idea and being able to execute that idea. That's success. And if you're successful, that time frame is small. So in India, for me, that time frame is currently very small. If I have an idea, I can execute that idea within a month to coming to America and feeling like a ranked newcomer and having to do it all over again in my 30s, which is exhilarating. It's exciting. There's nowhere to go but up. When the Netflix special hit, mm -hmm. clearly you started working the improvs in certain little smaller theaters. Yeah. But let's just take the first time you went into an improv in any city. Okay, so you go into a place, the Netflix thing hits... Obviously, in your country, you've done bigger theaters. And let's say you go into... My first show in America was the San Jose Improv. Great. And then Caroline's on Broadway. Great. So, so the San Jose Improv, for those of you who aren't aware of this business and where that is, it's a beautiful old theater yeah. that was bought by the improvs and converted. It has about mm -hmm. 300 seats on the bottom, and it has a balcony up top, about 150 seats. Yeah. Probably one of the largest improvs in the country and it's 450 seats a show and when you go in as an artist normally the first time you don't get to go in friday and saturday you have to go in 
other nights. Sometimes you have to go in on a Thursday night, sometimes a Wednesday, and you got to work Sunday. And when you look at the numbers before you go in, if you're Veer Das, you say, wait a second, 450, 450, 450. there's 3,650 seats I got to fill. And so you go in there and after the Netflix special in probably the largest and most daunting room to fill in show business and comedy, what happens? We we added three shows. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you add three shows. Yeah. Okay. Again, taking the 100% pie, mm-hmm. what percentage were Indian and what percentage were American? So I'll contextualize it by saying this. We were always selling tickets because of Bollywood. Like the first time I've ever, I ever came to America, we, we did Caroline's on Broadway and CAA set me up with the show. So we had, you know, about 3,000 Indians come out to Caroline's on Broadway. But since the Netflix special, it's the first time in my life that it's 50-50 down the middle. Because I'd get 95% Indian crowds and like a few hostages that would drag along <laughs> for the fucking show. Um, but now I did Australia right after the Netflix special, which was 50-50 down the middle. Montreal, 50-50 down the middle. So it's exciting because I'm like, fuck, my cushion is gone. My Indianness now has to be an Indianness for the world instead of an Indianness for Indians. So if there's something I really want to talk about, I have to make it accessible to people from everywhere in the world. So my writing has to be that much better. My, my reach... You know, it has to be that much better. So when you first went into San Jose, you'd sold out. You do your first show. Are you noticing throughout the show there's points that, holy crap, that's killing, but God, this is a signature bit and it didn't get as big a laugh there. Yeah. And you're thinking to yourself, okay, how do I tweak this to make it better? For sure, yeah. I mean, I'll rewrite or at least relook at a show after every show. Um, for me, it's also... It's strange because, you know, the Netflix special, I mean, and we're blessed, but it was such a really introductory special. You know, it wasn't really um, uh, deeply me, if that makes sense. You know, it, it, it was because you have no idea who I am. To you, I'm some guy who's from India. And that the, the special was an attempt to reach across the world and say, hey, listen, I can make you laugh in America. But I had to find things that you wanted to talk about. So I had to do material about race or about gun control or about this and that. But I didn't really tell you a lot about myself because we didn't know each other. And I feel like post this Netflix special, the American audience and I or the world audience and I, we know each other. So now there's room to tell you some shit, you know, and tell you a story about who I am. Because now there's no context to be set for this room anymore. So now I'm in there where I'm talking about growing up in Africa. I'm talking about growing up in India to an American crowd or an Australian crowd. And they're going with it. And that's exhilarating. Have you ever done a week where you put a certain number of shows up that you do the comedy in your language? I do stand up in English only. I always have. So I, I can't do stand up in Hindi. No, I do. I do movies in Hindi, but no stand up. No, you've never tried it. I'm not good at it. I don't think in Hindi. I think in English. You're not alone. Yeah. There's a beginnings of a movement now, very, very recent, Mm -hmm. where there's one guy, believe it or not, a white guy, this guy, John Stites, who runs Operation Comedy, this 
incredible benefit show is for the troops. And he speaks fluent Spanish, but right. he's a white guy. Yeah. And he does comedy in English, and he taught himself, or maybe it came naturally, to do comedy in Spanish. So he started some nights, brings comedians on, and they do Spanish comedy, and it's been unbelievably successful. But sometimes he'll ask people to come, and they say they don't feel as comfortable doing it in their language because it's a different rhythm and a different thing. So your themes wouldn't work in the language because the language is presented a different way like yeah, Spanish? Yeah, and there's a different intonation and pace and um, just poetry to Hindi that English doesn't have. Are there comedians who just do strictly... And they are the most successful comedians in India. Because when you do English, you're catering to 25% of India. When you you do Hindi, you're catering to 1.3 billion people. So the world is your oyster, really. Like India's biggest Hindi comedian. Like if I come to Canada and I do Toronto or whatever, I'll sell four or 5,000 tickets or whatever. He'll come here and sell 35,000 tickets in Hindi. Is, is there a market in the United States where you went to and it wasn't sold out and you thought to yourself... What is it about this town that doesn't see what the rest of the country sees? I, just, I mean, for, for I'm, I've been coming to America for a year and a half or two now. This whole journey is very recent. But for the first year, we were just saying, okay, where are the Indians and let's go there, you know? Um, and then CA and Levity, I kind of sat them down and I'm like, I'm never going to be able to perform for Americans if you keep sending me to India centers. You know, you go, we go to New York, there's 3,000 Indians that'll buy tickets. But I'll never know what an American finds funny. So then I came back and I did um, Charlotte, North Carolina, Denver, um, Irvine, I think. We did um, Phoenix, Arizona. And which was the market where you found the most challenging? Denver, I think, was was a very... Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. The waspy right-wing audience. And so it, it, it was a fantastic show. It went really, really well. But I had to be clever because I wasn't going to get by on being a novelty. I wasn't going to get by on being Indian. I wasn't going to get by on my political beliefs. So how else do you relate to these people without demonizing them? 
I'm going to ask you something that I've never asked anybody before. Sure. I want you to ask yourself a question that you've never answered before and then answer it. What makes this exhaustion, jet lag, travel, loneliness, um, and stress worth it? And because it really is all of this is so new and and didn't need to happen. And I think the answer is the infinite exhilaration of the unknown. You know, it's, I mean, I'd kind of been sailing a very predictable path in India. And then suddenly we made a right into like a new channel. And we're here now, and I have no clue how it's going to go. And I haven't felt that in a long time, having no clue. And it's fantastic. Were you happier when you had less money in your pocket? Or are you happier now when you had more money in your pocket? I'm not good with money. So even with the... It stresses me out. You know, so... I'm. I like not to think about it. I just. I'm. I'm very sort of risk averse and debt phobic. So I just put it in the bank and leave it there, you know. And I, I don't really make my money work for me, you know, at all. I'm. And I'm not a fairly. I don't lead a very extravagant lifestyle. I do pamper myself, you know. I'll, I'll fly first class. I'll do those things, but I won't. Um, I don't know. Like even my wife Shivani, she's a crystal healer and like a tarot master and stuff like that. So we're not really like, I don't think there's a Louis Vuitton product in our house or ever will be throughout our existence, if that makes sense. So, and I feel like when you get used to that shit is when you really, money starts stressing you out. Absolutely. They say a woman knows within five minutes of meeting a man <laughs> if she's going to be with them. I think that's... Did she know? Um... She was an event manager at an event where she yelled at me because I was in my green room for too long because uh, I just didn't know what time my band was on. And then I went on stage, did my concert, came back and hit on her. So, because uh, I was like, she yelled at me, I like you. Uh, <laughs> so that, that's kind of what got us together. And she's this amazing event manager who then became a crystal healer and a tarot master and a Reiki master. But... um I don't know. I think I think for us, it's romance is very um, it's in very small things, and I think it becomes that way for anybody. Really, you know, romance is is the way you walk across a room um, with like orange juice in your hand, <laughs> you know, rather than the way you walk across the room in a fancy dress with blah blah blah. It it, it changes. I think. Are you the kind of person who? tells people you love them all the time and are you a affectionate person or are you the kind of person who is more conservative and will not show the love or verbalize the love except in private i have this very 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 tightly knit close circle of people who i'm truly myself with and that's a maximum of nine people or ten people and not all of them are normal people. Some of them are artists as well. But it's, 
you know, there's a body at 3 a.m., give me a call and I'll show up at your house with a shovel. Those people. And I don't know how they know that they are them, those people to me, but we just kind of do. Um, how does somebody make the cut? Uh, I, I don't have to be funny around them. That's for one. You know what I mean? I'm interested in their life values. You know, my best friends, I've, I've got a fair amount of them, but, you know, one of them is uh, any, uh, a psychology professor at Columbia University. Um, two of them live in San Jose. One works for Apple, one works for SanDisk. One is a graphic designer in London. Um, my wife, a couple of other people. And if we get together, it's literally sitting on that bed and having a cup of tea and some biscuits and having a very basic conversation about my mom, you know, or something like that. We don't even address fame, Bollywood success. None of that exists in the universe that we're in. Are you a better writer or a better actor? Actor, for sure. Are you a better actor or a better comedian? I'm a better comedian than I am an actor. Okay. I'm, I'm also a better comedian than I am a comedic writer, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah. I'm, my process is to regurgitate, so I'll write nine pages, ending, and then I'll just kind of get in the shower and take a can of deodorant and hold it like a mic and just pace up and down in a room, and then I'll end up using one of those nine pages. But I don't rewrite with a pencil. I rewrite on my feet um, in a room. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you Cause you're going far Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.